Why do you linger here when there is no hope? There is still hope. Tempted to think there's no hope for overcoming some of the challenges of modern life? Ask an elf. Or a hobbit. Tune in Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. with Milo Lomsdown at your service and... Tani Tenuvial, the resident KUCI Middle Earth elf. For What Would Arwen Do on KUCI Irvine, 88.9 FM, and streaming live on KUCI.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, talking about great guests, we have a guest with us today who's been on our show before, and we're really going to be talking about many different aspects of privacy because we are going to be speaking with the publisher of Privacy Journal, which is an independent monthly journal on privacy in the computer age. And I get this, gee, I've been subscribing for probably uh, 15 years and I love this. I, I get my, my Privacy Journal every month and I look what's going on and it's uh, it's incredible. So let me tell you a little bit about our journalist publisher who has been on before and he's a great guest. We're going to be speaking today with Robert Ellis Smith, who is a journalist and uses his training as an attorney to report on individuals' right to privacy. And believe it or not, he's been doing this since 1974. That's when he started publishing Privacy Journal, which is this monthly newsletter. And he is in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. I had the opportunity to actually go to a privacy conference that he headed, and it was just beautiful there. Robert Ellis Smith is a frequent speaker. He is a congressional witness. He is a professional trainer, and he does so many things on clearinghouse of information, on things such as computer data banks, uh, medical records, the internet, electronic surveillance, the law of privacy, and physical and even psychological privacy. And he is the author of several books, including Ben Franklin's website, Privacy and Curiosity from Plymouth Rock to the Internet. And the fir- it's the first and only published history of privacy in the United States. He's also the author of Our Vanishing Privacy, and The Law of Privacy Explained, and Privacy, How to Protect What's Left of It, Work Rights, a book describing individual rights in the workplace, and the Big Brother book of lists. 
Privacy Journal also publishes a compilation of state and federal privacy laws, celebrities and privacy, and war stories, which is a collection of anecdotes on privacy invasion. He also writes a column for Forbes.com. He has been quoted many times in many, many newspapers, and he also has appeared on network television, including Face the Nation, Nightline, and he's been also on All Things Considered, which is NPR. And, of course, he's been on our show several times because we have to have him back every year. And he's a regular commentator on Marketplace on American Public Radio. He has a wonderful regular column that he does for Forbes.com. There's a lot more I could talk to you about him, but I'd rather spend the time speaking with him. But you can learn more at privacyjournal.net, also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. You can see his picture, you can see his bio, and we will archive this interview as well, and you can listen to that and the previous interviews that he's had with us through the years. So, Robert, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the East Coast. I'm really happy to join you. I think it's the fourth time we've done it. Yeah, I know. We have to have you every year to catch up. Great. (laughs) So we're in a totally new environment now, you know, and I know that you know this with Facebook and YouTube and Google and all and MySpace and all the craziness out there, the blogging. Tell us about this. Well, I guess until the Internet came along, uh, most of our privacy concerns started at age 21 or a little beyond that when we took employment and took on credit and insurance and uh, other responsibilities, and we started to see the information that was gathered by us. But now we have young people, um, younger than 18, uh, who are now leaving information all over the place on the Internet, and that is used uh, in two respects. There's two places to worry about one, it's exploited by private companies to whom uh, Facebook provides a lot of this information for advertising purposes. And secondly, it's exposed just to a wider public. It's exposed to people globally who really have no need to know. And that's something brand new in uh, our personal lives now, that information provided by an individual on a personal computer now is available uh, globally now, these companies do have privacy policies, but they're very complex and they're very awkward to uh, manipulate so that they work uh, for you. So that is a new environment. We have young people now who are exposing information about themselves to, to others, and that's something entirely new, and an environment where people uh, tend to think, I guess, that it's okay just to say anything about yourselves. They don't really understand the consequences of providing that information. I think the earlier generation did uh, have some notion of what the consequences were of uh, providing information about ourselves to strangers. And, you know, I think it's just not transparent, Bob, right? I mean, I think these kids are out there. They think if they're in their dorm room or they think they're in their kitchen or in their bedroom, they, they just think that they're communicating with friends. I don't think that they have any notion of how public that information could be, right? No, they really don't. And, um, you know, so many of Facebook's users are, and YouTube, too, are youngsters, young people, and I don't think those two companies really take that into consideration. And uh, there's a trusting environment. There's a feeling that uh, what you put up there is just going to be available, yes, as you say, just your friends. or Any embarrassing pictures or videos are just good, clean fun, and there'll be no consequences uh, from it later on. Um, people are 
young people especially, but also adults too, they don't seem to look carefully at what the consequences are of spreading that information around. You know, I recently did an interview with five different teenagers from all across the country. I had one from Boston, from your area. I had one from Southern California, one from Northern California, one from Iowa, and I think one from Illinois, and maybe there was another one from the South. And I asked these teenagers, they were anywhere from 13 to 16 years old, and I asked them each what kind of dangers do they think were on the internet and all they really thought about and they told me all that their schools taught them was about you don't talk to strangers on the internet because they could stalk you or they could come and kill you or rape you or whatever they really didn't get at all into the privacy issues and then what was even funnier is I was one kid who was very, very articulate and adorable. And I said to him, well, you know, how many friends do you have on Facebook? And he said, 600. (laughs) And I said, well, how many of them do you know really personally, like face to face? And he kind of balked at that. So, you know, they are talking to strangers, but they don't feel like they're talking to strangers. And they don't know if the person, it's like that that old uh, New York, uh, magazine with the dog, you know, and the dog is talking to his friend, the dog, and they're at the computer, and they go, "Hey, on the computer, nobody knows you're a dog." Yeah, right. <laughs> so you I know, guess on the computer, yeah. nobody knows it's hooked up to a webcam as well. I mean, the, right. these cameras are just tiny; they're about the size of a pack of cigarettes, and they can take images of anything going on and put it on the web in, a, in an instant. You know, we were just talking about young people, Bob. So, do young people really have a different ethic, or do they just not get it? Well, they certainly have a sense of privacy with regard to their parents and in the home. Every parent knows that kids want to have their own space and want to do things that are not subject to scrutiny by their parents. So they'd be quite upset if parents had access to Facebook, but they don't seem to have that notion of privacy with regard to their contemporaries, even those whom, as you pointed out, uh, don't know them personally. So that is kind of a new ethic. And what you have here, as I say, are people releasing information about themselves without uh, seeing the consequences of it, with, without being of age and without entering into contracts, without dealing with credit bureaus and employers and, and the like. So that's quite different. I, I wouldn't say that kids don't care about privacy. That commonly is said. It's just a different uh, view of privacy, that what goes on electronically is not a threat to them, apparently. Uh, what is more of a threat to them are what goes on in the home and obviously in school as well. And you know, Bob, I think it's because they haven't suffered the consequences yet. And I don't think that the parents, many of their parents are not as savvy online as their kids. So the consequences haven't been made really, you know, universal yet that people really know about. I mean, you read about some things where somebody is stalked online or There's identity theft online, and we're seeing more of that on Facebook and MySpace. And I was just reading recently about how there's a lot of identity theft on Twitter, believe it or not. You know, someone will uh, create a Twitter site, and and then you follow them or they follow you, and you're really following somebody who isn't who they say they are. Right. So so I think part of it is that there haven't been, uh, because it's such an explosion, like I guess Facebook's only been around six, seven years, right? So, yeah, so it's so new I guess that, what you're saying is there's yeah. no one whom they can trust who explains it to them. Just right. Around who does that. Right. And, and, and maybe they haven't even felt that there hasn't been enough of the ramifications becoming 
you know, in the schools where they learn about it or in the news or on TV, it hasn't been enough. I mean, we've seen the the movie Social Network, but I mean, it hasn't been out there for people to see the negative ramifications. So they are trusting. Yeah, I went to a school to talk about all of this, and I was surprised that the principal and the faculty had no notion about any of this at all. And they just kind of given up. They said, oh, well, you know, too complex for me, so I can't explain it to the kids. That is so true. Thank goodness that you went there. But, yeah, that's what that I'm seeing, too, is that everybody that I ask that are teenagers, they're, they're only looking about the dangers, but I don't think that these teachers and the principals and the school p- administrators are really that savvy themselves about what's going on. Right. And nor the parents, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, you know, when we talk about the ramifications, the negative ramifications, I'm thinking about people that aren't getting jobs because of what they're putting up on their Facebook and and, uh, even lawyers, young lawyers that aren't getting jobs because the law firms are looking over the the social network sites. What do you think about all that? Well, I I mean, this is one of the consequences they should know about. I, I hope they know about the consequences of bullying and of having embarrassing pictures put up on the net so that anybody can see them. And that leads to humiliation and uh, shame and sometimes to dire consequences by the individual. Or it uh, leads to harassment and and bullying in in the schools. But also the commercial exploitation is something they should know about too. Facebook takes information and uh, Gmail, for instance, which is run by Google, take information in the content of their messages to provide to advertisers so that these young people are getting advertising in their web browsing experience that is tailor-made for them based on what they reveal about themselves in social media and and in email. And uh, as long as they're aware of it, they can cope with it. But if they're not aware of it, they're going to be manipulated and they're going to start getting advertisements that are tailor-made for them and thereby um, soften them up to, to buy a product that they they may not, not want. And then you've also mentioned that college admissions officers and employers, recruiters, human resource people, even uh, agents at, at the, our national borders are using these social media to check out people as well. And, you know, you and I have talked so many times about identity theft, but again, a lot of identity theft, the more you put up there, the more likely that you could become a victim of identity theft. for, And it could be for anything, like someone could steal your whole profile and put it up on theirs, or they could steal your profile for revenge or do other things for revenge. So, you know, identity theft is an issue. And then how about these hackers? Hackers can get in there and steal this. Yeah, there's, the there's been a notable case of Facebook, of hackers getting into a lot of their data. Uh, pe- people should not be putting up their home addresses and their telephone numbers up. Uh, online because from these social media, strangers can get that information and then on the wider internet, they can find out social security numbers of individuals. And I guess as most people realize now, once you get the social security number, uh, you're off and running as an identity fraud artist and then you can take on that person's identity and order products and credit, even file in bankruptcy court in those people's names. Exactly. They even get medical treatment. That's another big thing, as you know. Yes. In Southern California, the although it's a national phenomenon, but the groups in Southern California were the first to alert us to the fact that people now, because of the expense of medical care, are getting it in the name of somebody else. 
Right. And they're also getting workers' comp and disability and other governmental benefits and even your tax refund. So, you know, it isn't just what you think about getting credit cards because people are saying, well, gee, you know, credit is so hard to get. I don't have to worry about identity theft anymore. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. There's a huge increase in debit card fraud and bank fraud and, and, you know, medical identity theft and all these other things. So you're absolutely right, Bob. Yeah. Now, what about these kids putting up pictures and photos and videos online? Now, what about that? What about that? Well, I, I think it's just unwise. I mean, maybe to put up a portrait so that people can get to know you. But why not uh, simply send a, a picture uh, by email as an attachment to those who you truly like and the people you trust? I don't understand putting it on either YouTube or on Facebook uh, unless it's just for the sake of exposure and exhibitionism, which I can understand. Some people are doing that, but they do have to recall, you know, that it's not that easy to draw that stuff down once it's uh, become embarrassing for you or you've grown out of that stage. So that I think that putting up pictures of parties and drinking and all the rest is, is not advisable at all. Uh, you can always email that stuff if you have a burning desire to show some of your friends what you look like on a Saturday night. Yeah, but then uh, they can post to Bob. You know, that's the thing. They're your friend one day, and especially that's true, young that people. That can happen, yes. Yeah, I mean, I uh, people that you think are your friends, they can turn against you, and then they post it. Right. So, you know, it's like these young kids texting, you know, and texting with, what do they call it, sexting, right, where they yes. take pictures of themselves and some of these kids are are underage taking, and then you pass it down on the on the internet, and you've got porno. And, right. And so, you know, I think people just it's just so easy. You know, I take my camera everywhere. Plus, I've got my my camera and my video right on my BlackBerry. So, you know, if your dog is doing something really cute, it's fun to take a picture. Or, you know, God forbid you're in an accident, you can take some pictures. But um, it's just too easy to upload. Way yes. too easy. I had a woman call me. You would love this. And uh, she was a, a, she's a beautiful model and um, very clean-cut model. And she found out that her photo, her head, her headshot was used on the body of a porno queen. And it was up on a website in Germany. Yeah. So, you know, even your, even your face can be used and we had a case here in Orange County where a teacher's face was put on um, a body that wasn't hers and it made her look like she was a stripper to discredit this teacher so you know I mean I I do all these fun things on PowerPoint you know I, I and I remember from my sister's birthday I put her head on a dinosaur so if I can do that so can everybody else right what are we gonna do Bob mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, we got to keep telling people what the consequences are of all of this, and uh, maybe some of this will pass. I don't know. You know, uh, the good news is that uh, about 70% of young people do Google themselves, something I advise people to do, to find out exactly what is on the net about you. And Google your Social Security number and see what turns up, see if it's there and your phone number and, and your, your address. Uh, that contrasts with about 57% of, of grown-ups. So uh, young people understanding how the Internet works are – much more willing to Google themselves and check out what on the web uh, is there about them. Yes, and I, I set up Google Alerts. So um, I have a Google Alert anytime my name comes up on the on the web or my kids' names 
or the name of my new book. I want to see if it's out there anywhere because sometimes, you know, somebody will quote you or put you in a blog and you don't even know it's there. So if you have a Google alert, it'll come right into your computer without you having to do the search. It's just there. So mm-hmm. that that's real helpful, too. How else can we use search engines to our advantage? Well, that's the main way, but uh, uh, just uh, play around with different terms about yourself and then all your family members and to see what shows up. And then if there is negative information about yourself, uh, you can certainly write to those websites and try to get it removed or get it corrected, although there's no guarantee that people have to do that. But at least you'll know where the negative information is about you. And the trick is, as I think uh, you have discovered and as I have discovered, is to get all over the Internet as a professional in your public persona, but keep off the Internet in your private persona. Exactly. Uh, like your home address and, and the like. And I think I've achieved that, keeping my home address off the Internet and lots of other things, because that information then, then leads to further invasion of, of your privacy. So uh, that's one way Google can be very instructive. On the other hand, I think it can be meant, maybe this you regard this as an invasion of privacy, but I certainly use it in this way. Before I'm going to meet somebody or have a business uh, contact with them, I, I Google them to find out who they are. So it does help you know about strangers before you meet them. And uh, in fact, just on a, in a social setting, maybe to know more about them before you meet them and then uh, not to check them out, or but just to be able to converse with them and talk about what interests them. So I think Google has changed our lives almost as much as the World Wide Web has in, in allowing us to check out information here, there, and everywhere, not the least of which is to be more accurate in our conversations, in our political discourse, and, and uh, in our writings, uh, and in our dealings with friends and neighbors. I'm always looking up things to make sure I'm right about what happens, and sometimes I'll even send an email to somebody and say, you know what we were talking about over the weekend? Well, I was wrong. Here, here's the accurate uh, information. Maybe it's because I'm a journalist, but I think we all ought to do that, you know. And uh, I think that Google has made information uh, more reliable, actually, in terms of journalism, not so much blogs, but certainly in mainstream journalism, because there now is no excuse for not uh, checking things out and being accurate about them. Exactly. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, we have these wonderful benefits. We can research in the middle of the night. We don't have to run to the library. We, we have just myriad sources there that we can look at. But on the other hand, there's a lot of insidious stuff going on behind the scenes. It's not transparent. We don't know who's looking at it. We don't know who captures it. And so there's that part. But even with journalism, I have a lot of friends that are journalists that they're they're almost put out of business because of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. I think that's certainly true of blogs. And imagine film critics and music critics. They they are put out of business because... Even in, uh, individuals now think on their blogs that they're reliable critics, and that's where people go to get the information about um, popular culture. They don't go to the established media anymore, and that's true in other fields as well. Yeah. I think the one thing we do have to be careful is that, and I know as, and you do this too, I know you're an expert witness and I'm an expert witness, and you have to be very careful on what you use for your expert testimony and really know what you're doing. You know, I had this one guy who was on the other side who was using Wikipedia and the judge just went nuts. I mean, (laughs) you know, that is not considered a a reliable source. So even when you're on the internet, we have to be real careful about 
what kind of sources we really are looking for. And for me, like when I look up stuff on identity theft and I have that as another one of my, uh, you know, alerts that I get from Google, sometimes I get these things and they're just totally wrong. And then I go to that site and I tell them, you know, you, you, you don't have it right here. So you have to really, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean that it's right as well. So we have to be discerning and savvy consumers as well. Yeah, I think it has to be used as a guide, and I don't think it should ever be used for any in-depth research. And we should realize that this is true of every single website, whether it's governmental or corporate or individual. It discloses only what that web person wants you to know. It doesn't disclose everything about a company or about an individual or a government agency. For that, you've got to go elsewhere. You've got to go to people who have dug out the facts. Now, sometimes they have websites, and you can find that on the web, but more likely that's going to show up in the printed word uh, or in books and, and magazines. Well, that's one of the reasons why I love the Privacy Journal, which I get every month for about 15 years. And so that's who we're speaking with today. We are speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who is a wonderful journalist and attorney. And he uses that training as an attorney to report on individuals' right to privacy. And he has been doing that in, since 1974, when actually in 1974, privacy suddenly information privacy information privacy kind of came to the forefront, and then he was one of the early early pioneers and really knew, I guess, a soothsayer, knowing what was coming and and having that intuitive sense. And he is wonderful, and we've had him on the show. Four different times, and I want you to know that you can go to his website at privacyjournal.net, and you can see all the wonderful books that he's written. And of course, if you're interested, sign up for that Privacy Journal. Like I said, I just can't wait till I get mine every month. And uh, has really wonderful things in the journal. I have I have one of them sitting in front of me right now. Actually, I have four of them here. I have I uh, pulled them all out. But you know, he has very interesting articles. He has. Uh, Q&As, people write in and ask questions about privacy. Um, He has quotes there, and he has new books that he talks about that are important for privacy and uh, programs that are coming up, conferences that are coming up. So it is really a, a wonderful, wonderful resource, whether you are a privacy expert or not, and you're just concerned about your own privacy, it's it's out there. So, Bob, why don't you... Um, Tell us about some new privacy laws that can help us out. Well, the Wall Street reform uh, bill that uh, many people are familiar with includes a small section in it that I think is very useful. It uh, provides people access to what their credit score is. We know that for many, many years, federal law has allowed us access to our credit report. um, And just when was it, five, ten years ago, it was made free so that we couldn't be charged for that. But it didn't include credit scores, and now it does. And that's the good news, that by federal law, you're entitled to know what your credit score is, sometimes called a FICO, uh, FICO score, F-I-C-O, because Fair Isaac's company is the main practitioner of credit scores. A credit score, sometimes called a credit rating, is based on uh, your credit reports, maybe at the three major credit bureaus, uh, cumulative uh, score based on how well you pay your bills and how much your uh, uh, credit is and how, how frequently you pay and what your credit limits are. And sometimes it's a great mystery to know how to get a credit score that is going to attract uh, credit grantors. So you might be wise to go to uh, Fair Isaac's uh, website and other websites 
to find out uh, exactly what makes up the credit score. And if you've had difficulty getting credit, then make sure you ask for your credit report and also ask for your credit score at the same time. Uh, the, uh, the, the, this was kicking around for many years, uh, and the, the credit scoring industry had resisted uh, giving people uh, rights to, to access, which was true with credit scores. It was true with medical information. It's true with government information. There's always a resistance by the professionals to let us see the information. So this one was fought for very hard, and I hope people will take advantage of it and make sure they see their uh, credit score. And by the way, if you're still getting credit credit cards and you apply for new ones, and that's no problem. That doesn't mean that you've got a good credit score necessarily. You may be paying outrageous rates uh, of interest, and that's based on credit scores as well. So you want to try as much as you can to get a credit score within the bracket that the industry considers favorable and get your interest rates down. Exactly. And, you know, I was reading recently there, if you go to Consumer Reports, and uh, I, you can see they they do an analysis of all the different credit cards, depending on what you want and whether you want to record a, a reward card or if you want a prepaid card, and they analyze them and kind of rate them. So that's kind of a neat thing if you're thinking of doing that. Also, if you want to know more about uh, credit reports and credit, credit scores, Evan Hendricks, who's a friend of, of both of ours, um, wrote credit Credit, score, credit reports and credit scores. So he kind of explains all that. And, of course, going to Bob's site at privacyjournal.net and privacyrights.org, lots of good places. There's another website that compares credit cards. I don't know if you've ever been to bankrate.com. I've heard of it. Yeah. And credit card, I think it's called creditcard.com. Yeah. Um, those have uh, comparisons of because it's hard to know, you know, what kind of credit card am I going to use? Now, if you if you always pay your credit card bill every single month and you never carry a balance, then, you know, you might want to look at some of these reward cards and get your mileage and go on a trip or do something like that. Or these uh, cashback cards, if you pay off all the time, then you, you can enjoy the rewards. If you don't uh, want the rewards and you're more worried about, keeping your interest rate lower, then you can get those too. So uh, there's a lot of places to look at. And it's hopefully with the uh, the new commission, what's it called? The financial, the Consumer Financial Commission. Is that the name of it? Yes. Um, that hopefully will give us some information about being more savvy consumers as well because it's, it's tough, isn't it? Yes. It's tricky. They don't make it easy for us. No. And just uh, to follow up on what what Bob said is it's really important to get your free credit report at annual, that's A-N-N-U-A-L, creditreport.com. You can get Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. You can get them all at once, once a year free, or you can stagger them and get one in January, one in June, and one in September. And uh, you can do that. Or some people like credit monitoring just to see what's going on with your credit. Let's talk a little bit about Street View. Yeah, be happy to. First on uh, credit scores, I believe the law also requires a lender to show you the credit score when you've been denied credit, so that's good to know. You don't even have to ask for it. Right. Street View has really attracted my attention, although not many Americans seem to be worried about it, but it's a product put out by Google that is uh, closely allied with their map function, which I find very helpful. But Street View has pictures of, of buildings uh, in most major cities, they uh, Google did a remarkable uh, thing by 
putting cameras on little cars and having people drive them through every single street in these cities and take a picture of every building, including the residences, so that if you put in a residence into Street View's uh, website and search it, uh, you'll find a picture of it. I find that invasive. I find that uh, uh, a violation of privacy because one's house is, is personal, even though it faces a public view. Um, that's quite different than having it uh, uh, kept on a website where people can exploit it and use it, and people who have no need to know overseas and the like uh, have access to it. I think that they shouldn't have residences uh, on, on Street View. But anyway, it's been relatively well accepted in the United States. Overseas, it hasn't been. In Germany, it hasn't been offered yet because people don't like the concept of it for the reason I've mentioned. But uh, about a year ago, as people may recall, uh, Street View got into a little trouble because those little cars running around neighborhoods were also picking up signals from uh, one's uh, uh, modem. Uh, when one has a wireless modem, a router in their home to connect to computers or a laptop with their desktop, um, if they didn't uh, protect that uh, password or use a password to protect it, those signals were uh, accessible outside on the street. And Google picked those up while it was taking these pictures. And why in the world they were doing that, I really don't know. Uh, but they preserved all of that stuff, and then now they claim it was all a big misunderstanding, and they didn't intend to um, to preserve it. They also, in the process, preserved some of the content of people's uh, email. If uh, you have a router and it's password protected, then you're okay. That did not occur. But this, to me, was clearly a violation of U.S wiretap law, which prohibits uh, a third party from intruding in on conversations or web uh, internet uh, traffic. Um, and in Europe, it seemed to be a violation of their privacy laws. So just about every Euro European country has a privacy commissioner, privacy czar, and they're all investigating this to see whether Google should be punished in some way or fined. The Federal Trade Commission, which kind of oversees privacy app uh, uh, compliance in this country, uh, closed down their investigation a couple of weeks ago, but there still was a complaint pending before the Federal Communications Commission, not the Federal Trade Commission, uh, because that's the commission that would enforce the electronic surveillance law. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's, uh, I can't believe that Google did this all inadvertently. It, it is pretty amazing. I mean, for me, if, I think for commercial, it's nice. I had to find a uh, a building in L.A., and I don't go to Los Angeles very often, and I get very confused there. It's, it's really tough for me to, <laughs> to drive there. It's an hour away, but it sure seems like it's further. And uh, it, it was nice to have Google for a commercial entity because I could find the building. I knew kind of what it was going to look like. It was a corner that was like three different corners and one corner. Do you know what I mean? And I knew yes. that if I yeah. didn't see it, I was going to get lost. And it did help me. I, I recognized it, and I actually printed off the picture so I could see, well, gee, this one, this is what it's going to look like. But I do feel really, I think it's creepy to have someone to, you know, look at my house. I, I can see some of the street view. I can even see my backyard. Do you know what really? I mean? Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable, and I, I don't like it either. And they say, well, it's in the public view, but... The public view is, you know, they're going to just be able to drive by my house. They can't see the whole thing from, like, a helicopter view. I think that's even yeah. more disturbing. And, of course, if people have taken pains to keep their home address off the Internet, then they won't really have as many problems with that. 
Right. So you can take it off Google? You can take your address off Google? You can take your the, the image off Google, yes. Oh. They, they, will, they have a little place to check, and they will remove uh, um, the image of your residence. Oddly, they don't ask for any verification of who you are, so I think your neighbor <laughs> can get your house removed if they want to. <laughs> I wonder if your neighbor could get it back up on it. That I wonder. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So let's talk a little bit about databases. Um, you know, that's uh, we have myriad databases, and we hear about security breaches every single day. What are your thoughts about that, Bob? Well, it's kind of last decade's privacy problems. That's what really led to uh, all of these laws that we have on the books now, these huge computer databases that we thought were going to be centralized, but then with the coming of personal computers, they got decentralized, and lots of people had uh, access to lots of information from remote terminals, and then it got even more uh, tough to keep in control on when we had laptops and portable handheld devices and an awful lot of personal data at companies was downloaded to these personal uh, uh, handheld devices and laptops, and these things get stolen. And next thing you know, a huge database of really intense personal information about people, whether they're medical information or their financial data or nothing more than their credit card numbers and their phone numbers, uh, all this stuff is 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 lost is, is stolen with the the hardware we haven't had a lot of cases actually of people suffering consequences from that but the potential is enormous when you think of a laptop that's stolen generally the thief wants the hardware but if he or she knew that that hardware was packed with social security numbers and credit card numbers they would be off and running and selling that information to these rings of internet uh, uh, fraudsters. Um, so uh, it's it's a very difficult thing to control. I I think that uh, we ought to have restrictions on any downloading of personal data to portable devices. And then you know we've got all of these hackers from all over. Like look at card systems and the Heartland payment. You know we've had some of these huge uh, database problems where we have had victims of identity theft and. Uh, we we don't have a national security breach law, which actually I'm glad about because the ones that have been proposed have been much less stringent than our California one. And if you're listening and you don't know about the California security breach legislation, which many other states have followed, it says that if you have a computerized information, and this and we are even kind of interpreting that to mean computerized if it was computerized even if it's printed out later but it was computerized information and it has sensitive data including social security numbers or financial information or medical information like bob was talking about and it was not encrypted and it's acquired by somebody who wasn't authorized then that company or the governmental agency in california has a duty to disclose it to all possible victims, all of them. And uh, so that's that's worked in pretty well that we've had a lot of disclosures. The problem is, is that we haven't had, you know, there's no law that really allows us to sue them. You know, I mean, they've had, they've tried to do some, some negligence laws, uh, negligent cases, but, um, you know, the choice point one was... You know, the Federal Trade Commission find the choice point. We have federal laws. But 
What do you think? What do you think is going to happen in Congress? Are we going to get a national security breach legislation going here? This I'm not year? sure with the makeup of the Congress uh, right now, and for you, the point you made, um, there may be no pressure from the states to do so. We have, I think, 34 or more states have their own laws. They differ a little bit, but they've been pretty effective. Um, so I'm not sure that there will be a, a federal law. Maybe we're okay uh, without one. Yeah, As you if, may if know, they the, water it down, we're not going to be we're not going to be better off. That's for sure. If they make yeah, that's you know, the pattern too, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know, Congress has to do that because they're legislating for a whole continent. As you may know, you probably do because you've probably been involved. But for the last three years, uh, the Assembly has attempted to amend that law, which is the nation's first and I think a, a great idea, uh, to require notification to the Attorney General as well. Um, and also to prescribe the, the exact form of notification to people. And uh, the governor uh, vetoed it three times. The latest time was uh, just in September. So Yeah, and, and here they got again. both houses to agree twice. Yeah, two yeah. years in a row they, they it was unanimously passed by both our um, both houses, our Senate and our Assembly, and our governor vetoed it. And it just that just blew me away. He didn't want to put any extra burden. But if you don't know what is stolen – then you don't know how to even put up any barriers. Right. So, yeah, it's crazy. Well, we have a new governor. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think these laws need some supervision by either the Attorney General or Consumer Protection Office. And the second generation of these laws in other states have done that. Uh, they, they have required uh, notification to a state agency who then can oversee it. In fact, they can save a lot of paperwork by reporting back, well, we don't think this breach was significant. It didn't affect a lot of people. And so you don't have to make any notification. So they can serve the interests of business as well. Yeah. I I have a real worry about any agency saying, you know, it's not that big a deal. You don't have to notify. I'm I'm one to say if if your sensitive data is taken, notify, you know. And it, I know in, in Congress, I remember testifying with the Bank of America that said, well, we're in the position to, to know ourselves if our data breach can cause a risk of harm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is like the fox minding the hen house, you know, yeah. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah. We are speaking with Robert Ellis Smith, who is a wonderful attorney and journalist, and he's the publisher of Privacy Journal. I have been getting his Privacy Journal for 15 years. I think he is wonderful. I know him personally. I think that he is one of our great privacy mentors. He is a journalist who also is an attorney, and he publishes the Privacy Journal from beautiful Providence, Rhode Island, and he's the author of numerous books, and you can find out a lot more about him, his books, the Privacy Journal, all of their wonderful publications at privacyjournal.net. And um, so, Bob, what about uh, some of the other technologies, like, you know, like GPS? G give, us, give us a rundown on those. Well, I talked earlier about databases, but uh, in this decade, I think the real threat are from not so much databanks, but uh, locational technology. Um, geographical positioning systems, which will allow you to identify the location of a vehicle or individual or a cell phone, uh, and express toll systems, which, which we use as a convenience, but we should look at our monthly statement and see that it is a log of where we have been and what times we have been there. 
Right. And there's TV cameras all over our cities now. We haven't quite reached the the uh, peaks that England has, but we're pretty close to it. Um, and we should know that cell phones do allow for monitoring us and locating us within the particular cell that we're communicating with. So we, we have now, in the last five to ten years, put in our hands um, a lot of technologies that indicate where we are, and we should be mindful of that. They're actually classic monitoring technologies, and we, because we get such convenience out of them, we've allowed them to take off. You know, I just wonder why, if, if there was be some way, and maybe because we don't have a real privacy commissioner in this country, but there is no oversight to make sure that all these new technologies build into the architecture of these technologies, privacy considerations and privacy protections. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, international privacy uh, uh, commissioners that I mentioned earlier uh, meet regularly, and they met in Israel uh, last month, and they approved a resolution to encourage a concept called privacy by design, which was originated in Toronto by the privacy commissioner there. And the concept is uh, we should be putting privacy into systems when they are designed from the beginning and not try to uh, uh, shove them into uh, a technology that's previously developed without any privacy protections. And uh, if we did that, we'd save a lot of money uh, for sure. The idea is called... uh, privacy by design. I also think people should know that even though we don't have privacy commissioners in this country, uh, in California, actually, you do have an office in the Consumer Protection Department that does look after people's privacy and will handle complaints. But there are also other sources. Uh, Most of the laws in the United States don't cover all records generally. They cover a particular category. And that's really where you have to direct your complaints. It could be the Attorney General's office. It could be the Consumer Protection Department. It could be the Federal Trade Commission, which looks after unfair trade uh, uh, practices. It could be the Federal Trade Commission, excuse me, Federal Communications Commission, which looks after uh, invasive uh, intrusions of electronic surveillance. Uh, It could be the State Insurance Commissioner, uh, which oversees uh, insurance departments in just all of our states. So this... uh, and the Better Business Bureau and the bar associations, uh, although they're not hyperactive, they will respond to complaints. So you have to uh, shop around and look where to place your complaint and where to get help because there is help out there. The, the problem is is that these governmental agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and I would imagine the, the new um, Consumer Financial Commission will take complaints, but they won't do anything until they have enough complaints and they can't represent you individually. I think that's the the complaint that people call me about all the time and they go, well, Mari, you know, you say on your website and your books to make a a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission, but they don't do anything for me. And they can't. They really don't have the authority to take individual cases. They can only take a case where it's, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of people are being hurt and then it's a deceptive practice or it's unfair or something. So that's that's kind of the problem is we're finding in these a lot of the uh, legislation is that there's no private right of action. You have to go to the attorney general. You, you really can't get redressed. And, and that's what I'm seeing. And I'm hoping that that will change a little bit, because I think if you have real enforcement by individuals, I think that's a way you're perhaps going to get some changes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that is a problem. But 
having worked in the federal government, I do know that complaints still are important and people should still file them because it allows the agency to document to others uh, the need for changes in the law or the need for more personnel. And they also allow the good people in government to do what they have to do. Right. They Internally, they can point to the nature of complaints and the type of complaints to uh, get cover for what they want to do when they want to do the right thing. And also the, a narrative of what happened to people is very, very persuasive within the government and within Congress and within legislatures. So it's important that people still file them and realize that they may not see the fruits of that uh, effort uh, for for a long time. Uh, and keep, keep going. There are some uh, agencies that do pursue private complaints for people, and uh, they certainly can, do have the power to make a company stop a particular practice. Yes, yes. Let's talk a little bit about the smart grid. I don't think people realize what you know, the problems might be as we're all going to be on this electric, you know, electric, electricity is going to be on a smart grid all across the country. This is kind of scary to me. What about you, Bob? <laughs> yeah, well, this is uh, an attempt to uh, make power delivery to people's homes much more efficient based on the hour of day that they use it and the like. And most uh, you, electricity will be billed based on the time of day you use it. If you use it off peak, then you'll get paid. You'll you'll be paying a lower rate. And to do that, you have to make the delivery system much more sophisticated so that it can monitor your uh, electric uh, consumption. And uh, that's what the smart grid is is called. Uh, on a national basis, aside from privacy, it's called the concept of uh, directing power to where it's needed throughout the country um, and cutting down on power where it's not needed at a particular time. Right now, we, we, we provide power regionally, and it's not always the most efficient. We're, we're overloading some areas that don't need all that power at certain times of year and depriving others that do need it of, of electricity. So that's what the smart grid is all about, and, and it does allow utilities, when it's these smart meters are installed, to uh, monitor um, events in your home and your comings and goings and when you're on vacation and whether you have... Uh, high-powered appliances and the like. And so we've got to build into this uh, some privacy protections. Uh, as we say, privacy by design before we have these systems implemented. And, you know, I worry about, you know, again, me getting people who are exposed to crime and being a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. I keep thinking, well, what if you've got some unscrupulous employee that's going to say, oh, well, this house or these houses, they're away. This is a good time to do a burglary, you know? That's one thought that they're going to know nobody's there. You're not. You're going to have to put all your lights on, or just you know, kind of put your timers on and don't forget. Or you know, just the fact that they're going to be knowing what I'm what I'm doing or what kind of electric I'm using. It just is a little scary. And then again, there's the issue of when you're all on the smart grid. What if it, there's a terrorism attack? What about that? Yeah. Well, I I think it's supposed to be designed to. Uh accommodate that and to take care of that. Certainly the Internet is, really. The Internet would be very hard to close down nationwide yeah. because they did plan ahead for that. Right. I just think you're right. The privacy by design or by the architecture, you know, our, our wonderful uh, Senator uh, Joe Simidian, who is going to be on my show as well, He's he comes on every year. He's, um, you know, he's been the chairman of the 
California's uh, California Senate Privacy Committee. And that's what he's been asking for in things like radio frequency identifiers and, um, you know, various documents to say, hey, let's let's just build it into the technology of what you're doing. But it just doesn't seem to happen. Right. I'm curious how he got his interest in privacy. Do you know? I'm trying to think. I'm, I must have asked him that. But he he's up in the Silicon Valley. That's where he comes from. Yeah. So he he deals a lot with technology. And I think what happened when the security breaches, he was the one who wrote the very, very he and Senator Peace, he was in the assembly at the time, uh, but he and Senator Peace wrote compatible uh, security breach legislation. So he wrote the first along with Senator Peace back then, which was, you know, years ago already. Yeah. So um, he's been into it. I think just basically he's up, you know, he's in the technology area. He is an attorney and it just, I, I'll have to ask him again. That was a good question. I forgot why he got into it, but yeah. I know that yeah. he has a very strong desire for tech. He loves technology, but at in, in the same time, he, he really sees that what you were calling the privacy by design is being so important. Yeah. What about fusion centers? What, what is that all about? Well, that was created uh, after the attacks in, in 2001 uh, to have each state coordinate all of the uh, intelligence that was coming to these various departments, law enforcement and military, uh, to try to make sure that intelligence information didn't slip between the cracks. We had plenty of uh, hints about the coming of 9-11. If only we had been smart enough to combine them and as they say, connect the dots. And fusion centers, which are sponsored by federal money, were intended to connect the dots. And they've just collected a whole lot of information, but it's a classic example of a lack of privacy by design. Not a single one of them has any protections for all of that sensitive information that's being gathered. And no oversight that they're spending the money uh, properly, and many of them are not. And there hasn't been any really good example of how they have connected the dots so far. So that's why they worry privacy uh, people a lot that they we don't exactly know what they gather but we do know it's a lot of information about individuals and there's no uh, protections of confidentiality and no protections giving people a right to know what information these fusion centers might be collecting and to correct it or to delete it if necessary it reminds me of those watch lists you know the tsa watch list and you know people don't know how to get off of them. You know, you can write to, you, know, you can go on the website and try and get off of them, but it, it is not easy. You don't even know how you got on them. Yeah, that's right. That is real easy. The way it's supposed to work now is you go to the Transportation Security Agency and, and you uh, uh, put in a what's called a redress, saying that you're on that list inappropriately. And then that redress, you get a redress number with your complaint, and then you enter that into your airline reservation, which you can do uh, when you make your reservation online or by telephone. And that's supposed to alert the airline when you show up at the airport that you are the subject of a complaint. You're probably a person with a name that is shared by several other people, one of whom is on the watch list, and they've got you mixed up with them. Exactly. I, You know, I, I think, I don't know if I told you this, but this young man in our neighborhood has a Irish, very, very Irish name, and he was on the watch list, and he's, he's a hockey player. And every time he'd go to get on an airplane, they this poor 15-year-old, you know, traveling to go to a hockey all over the country, he would get stopped, and he would have to wait, and he missed his plane once. And it just is crazy. 
How about the the no buy list? That that list that Treasury has too about how uh, you don't know how you get on that as well. That's right. Yeah. It's crazy. So, yeah. and and you know what? We're I can't believe it, but we are just about out of time. So I want you to give your website and just real quickly what we can find there. Sure. Thanks. It's www.privacyjournal.net, or people can call us in Providence or email orders at privacyjournal.net. And on the website, we've got some tips for how to protect your privacy. We've got some uh, tips for companies on how to have a decent privacy policy. We've got some excerpts from all of our newsletters, description of our books, and uh, some of our advocacy, too. Um, Over the years, you know, we've been asked to testify and the like, and we include some of the excerpts from all of that. So there's a whole lot, including some links to websites, including the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse in Southern California and others. So uh, I think there's a lot there you can get uh, to help protect your own privacy. It's privacyjournal.net. It's terrific. And I especially appreciated the the newest things that you write about there, like the nude airport scanners. (laughs) I I kind of refused, and it was interesting how I got patted down. So that was a fun experience, but I'll you got Yeah, you got to be privacy savvy, and you sure are one to help us to to be that. And we appreciate you so much, Bob. We will have Robert Ellis Smith on again very soon, and please keep in touch. Thank you, and thank you for all your work too. All right, good luck. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from eight to nine a.m. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts. By the way, you can see the pictures and their bios, and then we link to their websites. And also write us emails about what's important to you or what you're worried about. Privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we are so pleased to welcome Scott Ewan, who is a deputy sheriff in the Community Programs Unit of the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And he's been with the department for five years, and prior to that, He gave 16 years of service with the Garden Grove Police Department. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Well, thank you, Mari. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us about this wonderful community programs of the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Well, that's a real uh, special uh, part of the department that actually goes out into the community. And our focus is to provide drug education to the students of Orange County, along with some mentoring, too. Well, that's terrific. Now, with the economy so challenging and all the layoffs, how is it that you're funded? Well, we are funded actually by a nonprofit organization called Drug Use is Life Abuse. And if you've ever seen around October Red Ribbon Week where the kids are wearing red ribbons, we're the ones that provide all those red ribbons to every student in Orange County. 
but the organization is made up of these people that want to put their private funds together for the sole purpose of providing that drug education to, to all the students. You can go to our website at www.duila.org. It stands for Drug Use is Life Abuse. Perfect. D-U-I-L-A dot org. Okay. We'll have you back again. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.